Pale with shock, staggering, but alive. Ahead of her, she saw Tuvok's group crowding toward a dark slash in the cliffside. She realized they had found the mouth of the cave. The ragged group tried to run, fear of another bombardment of energy bolts propelling them against the fierce wind. The side of the mountain seemed kilometers away, but she knew it couldn't be more than 40 meters now. Tuvok's group had disappeared into the cave. Janeway glanced behind her to make sure the others were with her. The ozone smell began to build again, and Janeway realized it was the harbinger of another attack. And then she was there, Tuvok's arm steadying her, his firm grip infusing her with strength. She turned and waited as the young people lurched toward the cave opening and tumbled in. Only when they had all entered did Janeway, Tuvok, and Chakotay turn to follow them. The crackle of an energy buildup pulsed through the air. The eruption of a massive charge of bolts created a percussive wave that pushed them through the entrance, and they fell headlong into the cool darkness of the cave. Tuvok and Chakotay began counting their people, making sure everyone had made it to safety. She noted a worried furrow on Chakotay's forehead, slightly distorting the distinctive tattoo he wore on his temple. What is it? Who isn't with us? Jaren. Janeway immediately started forward. Jaren was a young Bajoran who had kept a lot of anger stuffed inside, and she had been working with him during the voyage so he would feel more like a member of the crew. She felt Chakotay's strong grip on her arm, pulling her back. I'll get him, Captain. Commander, you're to stay with your team. Tuvok, too. That's an order. Taking one last gulp of good air, she hurled herself from the cave and into the raging plasma storm. Instantly, her lungs were burning. Her legs turned mushy, and she felt herself stagger. Jaren was only ten meters ahead. As she reached him, he pushed himself upright. Then, bracing each other, they started toward the mouth of the cave. The cave opening yawned ahead, not fifteen meters away. But Jaren stumbled, and they both went crashing to the ground. She smelled the unmistakable odor of an ozone surge. She threw her body on top of the young Bajorans to shield him from the worst of the blasts. It was the most ferocious attack yet, filling the air with snapping, arcing green bolts. The fiery pain seared her from the inside out. She couldn't even hear her own scream. And then, her father lifted her up. She felt his strong arms grip her, pulling her across the ground. She smiled and relaxed into the journey, gliding across the terrain as though she were skimming on a cushion of air like a hovercraft. The air had cleared and was sweet and cool. The pain was dissipating. She looked up again, wanting to see her father. Chakotay was staring at her, his face just inches from hers. He turned to the others. She's all right. She was in the cave again, Jaren at her side. Tuvok and Chakotay had rescued her and Jaren. Chakotay's strong arms had saved her, not her father's. She took a deep breath and leaned back against the wall of the cave. Death had been cheated once more. Everyone was safe. Weeks later, Janeway found herself in the doctor's office, telling him of the strange dreams she'd been having after her experience with the plasma storm. I can't really call them nightmares, Doctor, but they make me feel anxious. I'm always in a house of some kind, and I have to get from one room to another because the room is dirty and has to be cleaned. But there's a closed door blocking my way. The doctor regarded her curiously. 
Houses, hmm, with many rooms. Yes. Once I dreamed I discovered an entire deck on Voyager that I hadn't realized was there. It had dozens of rooms, and I knew it was important that I make sure they were all clean. But I couldn't even get out of the first room because the door to the next one was closed and locked. The doctor crossed his arms and fixed his eyes on her. I'm not certain what you want from me, Captain. The dreams don't sound particularly harrowing, and apparently they don't interfere with your sleep. I suspect it's a temporary phenomenon, and unless you find these dreams debilitating, I wouldn't worry about them. Chakotay to the Captain. I think we may have a problem. Janeway stood to leave. On my way, Commander. When she entered the bridge from the turbolift, the faces of the bridge crew looked grim. Immediately, Chakotay reported, We've been hailed by a Kazon ship. He said he was Maj Dut of the Vistic, but didn't give any clue as to what he wanted. He was none too friendly, and insisted we wait for them to intercept us. Janeway felt a twinge of foreboding. Any encounter with the Kazon was potentially dangerous. They had never interacted with the Vistic sect, but Janeway had heard of them. Like all Kazon, they were warlike and volatile, and any encounter could prove hazardous. She turned to Tom Paris, the young, sandy-haired lieutenant who was, as he had promised on their first meeting, the best damn pilot she could find. Mr. Paris, we're not waiting around for a Kazon that won't even do us the courtesy of telling us what he wants to discuss. Continue your course for the Alpha Quadrant, Warp 6. She heard Tuvok's voice from the security station. Captain... It is my duty to point out that the Kazan Maj will be highly insulted by this decision. We risk his enmity by ignoring his request. Noted, Mr. Tuvok, but I don't feel like yielding to a demand. Janeway thought she felt a general uplifting of spirits on the bridge. On an expedition where they frequently found themselves at the mercy of their circumstances, it was bracing to take a stand, to thumb their noses at the dark forces of the Delta Quadrant. The heart of the system was a K7-class yellow dwarf star. They detected the fourth planet at 900 hours. It had an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere with abundant flora, which meant the possibility of food was temptingly high. Captain Janeway was pleased with this particular discovery, for they hadn't collected any food supplies after the plasma storm on the last planet. There was no indication of a population, although Janeway noted that some formations had a curious symmetry that might warrant investigation. Cautious after their previous experience, she ordered an exhaustive series of sensor sweeps. Only after she was satisfied did she order the away team to the transporter room. Tuvok was to take one group only and make an on-site inspection before calling for additional crew. His team included Harry Kim, Neelix, Kess, and twenty Maquis and Starfleet crew. Down on the planet's surface, Tuvok's first order of business would be to investigate the suspiciously symmetrical formations. They beamed down within a kilometer southeast of the formations. The landscape of the planet was not so Earth-like as the prior planet had been. The terrain was shot with volcanic rock, and the soil was slimy, with a greenish cast to it. Quietly, cautiously, the team climbed a ridge that separated them from the location of the formations. Tuvok gestured to the others to stay down, and he slowly crept forward, lifting his head to peer through thick underbrush at the formation before him. 
A mound of stone rubble stretched for nearly half a kilometer in either direction. There was a vague order to the rubble, but it was difficult to discern a pattern. One feature identified the mass of stone and brush as having at some time been subject to intelligent hands. A brilliant cobalt blue spire rose from the center of the mound. Nothing gave off any suspicious readings. There was no sign of life. Tuvok motioned for the team to move forward. Harry Kim, in particular, seemed fascinated by this possible archaeological find, and after he disappeared around a large boulder, it was his cry of discovery Tuvok heard. When the others caught up to him, they gasped at the sight. An arrangement of delicate skeletons, which at first glance appeared to be of winged humanoids, was spread in a deep circular indentation in the ground. The wing bones, when extended, would have stretched two meters or more. These beings would have had the capacity to soar high into the air above the surface of this planet. Tuvok scanned one of the skeletons. The cranium of this being suggests a large brain. In all likelihood, they were intelligent. Kim's brow was furrowed in concentration. The grouping indicates a death ritual, doesn't it? Tuvok nodded. Indeed. There are a number of inferences to be drawn from what we see here. This may be a family group, or it may represent the victims of a particular disaster. Plague, perhaps. Without further information, it would be impossible to make a clear determination. Kes, who as always was curious about everything, added, There doesn't seem to be any artifacts buried with them. Neelix interrupted them. Look at that, Mr. Vulcan. Neelix was pointing at something a hundred meters distant. It was another spire, deep blue like the first. Tuvok turned to the group. It is common in many species to link burial sites with visual markers. We may be able to follow a trail of such markers until we arrive at a sacred site. Neelix jumped in again. I must remind you that our primary mission is to gather food supplies. Quite right, Mr. Neelix. I suggest you detail a group of ten and scout the area for foodstuffs. I will take the others on a scientific investigation. Fine. Kes, you're with me. Oh, no. Neelix, I'm going with Tuvok. Neelix nodded and quickly counted out the ten who would be with him. He led his small band away from the mound and began scanning for edible plant forms. Harry Kim led the others, eagerly marching toward the second spire, eyes scanning upward as though he might suddenly spot one of the soaring creatures who had once sailed these skies. Janeway was in her ready room, relaxing with vegetable bouillon while reviewing personnel reports. A dull ache had burrowed its way just behind her eyes. She hadn't slept well last night, having revisited the house with many rooms and finding, inevitably, the closed door. Suddenly, there was Tom Paris's startled voice over the comm. Bridge to Captain. We have a rapidly approaching... There was a horrendous explosion. Sparks flew from her monitor. She made her way to the door, even as the ship shuddered and jolted, threatening to throw her off balance. The doors flew open at her approach, and she stumbled onto the bridge. Chakotay, report! A Kazon vessel, Captain. It stayed in high warp until the last second, then dropped out and attacked. Tom Paris' hands flew over his controls. Taking evasive action, Captain, but we've taken damage to the impulse engines. Lieutenant Rollins, who was filling in for Tuvok at Tactical, reported... Shields at 57%, hull breaches on decks 4 and 15. 
Janeway swung into action. Prepare to return fire. Ready forward phaser bags. Fire at will, Mr. Ron. In spite of Paris maneuvers, the Kazon ship was still with them. Two consoles exploded and several more went dead. Chakotay was calm and suggested retreat. Captain, we can't hold out. We'd better try to get out of here. Janeway hesitated briefly. The away team was still on the planet. She didn't want to abandon them. Janeway to Tuvok. There was no reply. Rollins reported again. The long-range comm system is down, Captain. After another bone-jarring jolt, Janeway wasted no more time. Mr. Paris, set a course for that planetary nebula we passed. Then put us into rapid high warp. Let's see if we can't catch them napping. Janeway noticed that Paris smiled slightly. There was nothing he enjoyed more than using his piloting skills to outfox an enemy. The sudden leap to warp did indeed catch the Kazon by surprise. Voyager was able to enter the planetary nebula. Its clumps of star matter millions of kilometers across offered a perfect hiding place. Janeway's plan was to make repairs, regain strength, and then get back to the planet as soon as possible. She was amused when Chakotay ordered her to her quarters, although it was imperative for all of them to rest while they could. Back in her quarters, Janeway couldn't sleep. She tried going through all the exercises and procedures she had developed over the years for bouts of insomnia, but in spite of her efforts to quiet her mind, one thought came crowding back. Her away team was stranded. She had to get them back. It was the second time in as many months that she had faced this problem, and the fiftieth since they'd been flung to the Delta Quadrant. Her life since then had been a series of challenges and crises. She'd been tested time and again, pushed to the limits she wasn't sure she could withstand, and then pushed further. She was tired of challenges. There was a time when they energized her, but now they threatened to overwhelm her. She wanted to feel safe again, secure and protected, knowing someone else was watching out for things. Young Catherine raced through the herb fields in Indiana, heart pounding and lungs burning. How could she have lost track of the time? She had only minutes to get ready and meet the tennis team at the transport site. She'd come to the fields early this morning because she was determined to understand the derivation of the distance formula. She was convinced that if she did, Daddy would be so proud of her that he'd spend more time at home. More time with her, the way he used to when she was little. She didn't know what had happened lately. He used to transport to Starfleet headquarters once or twice a week. But about a year ago, he began to transport to San Francisco almost every day. Occasionally, she heard him talking with Mommy, and she heard him mention a species called Cardassians.